The following program is brought to you by Podcast One Sportsnet. Don't forget to download our new Podcast One app. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. We've made it through a long opening weekend of the season, and now we're already looking ahead to week two. I'll catch up with Max Olson of The Athletic, who is heading to the big game of the week. Clemson is visiting Texas A&M. We'll dive into that. We'll chat about some ugly starts to the season for ranked teams like Miami and Michigan, Florida State and Texas, and give our thoughts about where they go from here. Thanks again for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can find us on Podcast One. We're happy to be working with those folks and appreciate all that they have done to help the podcast take off. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe, and if so inclined, give us a good review. That helps others find us. And as usual, you can go to collegefootball.ap.org, where you can read all of AP's college football coverage, and away we go. So joining me this week is Max Olson from The Athletic. He's a national college football reporter. We brought in Max because uh, he is covering one of the big games this weekend, maybe probably the big game this weekend, at least the most interesting game this weekend. But we're also going to pop a little bit into last week and we'll swing around the country a little bit. Let's start here because you live in Austin, so you may or may not mm-hmm. have been at Tom Herman's news conference where he referenced of Mice and Men and sort of botched it up a little bit. But we'll take Tom Herman in Texas, and we'll take Miami, which face planted, and Michigan, which, like, compared to some of those other teams, actually didn't look that bad. And we'll take Florida State, which was an abject disaster in Willie Taggart's first game. And as a way of sort of wrapping up what happened over the weekend, which of those four teams do you think has the best chance of sort of righting the ship and having a pretty good year? You know, I think that Michigan will be okay. I I wasn't that put off by what they did against Notre Dame. I, I, if anything, I was more impressed by how Brandon Wimbush and the Irish played in, in being able to kind of jump on them right away and hold on. Um, you know, the Texas thing is just, I mean, I, you know, Ralph, I tried to tell you the summer, man, just, you know, <laughs> believe it when you see it. And, uh, you know, they still just are not there yet. I think it's going to be a process. I think this was still going to be a season where they were building towards, you know, next year being a better year. And I think you saw a lot of the same problems they had last season, a lot of stuff that they, still have to clean up i i wouldn't treat that like a like a just an abject disaster by texas but they've talked a big game about being a lot better and and they didn't show it and uh you know now you've got people here in austin kind of freaking out about maybe they need to see a quarterback change who, who's the play caller all this stuff they still got a lot to work out but and then you know i think for florida state and tennessee and some of these other you know chip kelly some of these these new coaches like you sort of expect that you know this is just the starting point you, you knew it wasn't going to be great. Um, I, I really impressed by Virginia Tech, no doubt about that on Monday night. But you know, I think he knew with a lot of these new coaches, like this is going to be a long-term process. There's not going to be a quick fix. There aren't that many quick fixes in college football, and even at those programs where you can recruit at a higher level, it's still going to take time. And uh, so, to me, I like th- those first games. It's just a starting point, and to me, like not something you'd get super worked up over. Yeah, I, I was probably a little 
I was, you know, certainly disappointed to see what I thought would be a better effort out of Florida State. But in retrospect, mm-hmm. this is a team that has been playing Jimbo Fisher style offense, and now you're asking them to play up tempo, and they looked like a team that wasn't comfortable right. with that. So, I mean, it looked very much like a team that was not recruited to play this offense. So maybe you sort of dismiss that going forward. The Texas thing, yeah, you know, just a little background. So I was sort of with you on, like, I'll believe it when I see it with Texas. I've even sort of said that with voters. Uh-huh. And though, just for the listeners here, there was a moment as I'm trying to make my Big 12 predictions for the season, and I was really having a hard time pinpointing a number two team because I'm not that mm-hmm. high on West Virginia. So I'd sort of slotted in them and slotted in some other teams. And I looked at like sort of, well, what if Texas, what does that look like if Texas is in the Big 12 championship game against Oklahoma? So in doing this and sort of thinking out loud, I, I texted Max and Paul Meyerberg, two of my friends, and said, what do you think of this? What, what, what would you think of Texas being in the Big 12 championship game this year? And Max sort of talked me off that ledge, and I luckily didn't do that. I didn't put Texas in the Big 12 <laughs> championship game. So thank you very much for Max, but you never know. I mean, I guess it's a long season and things could sort of spin a different direction. Heading back toward sure. the, the other thing that also it kind of sucks about college football if you are a fan, is that unlike the NFL where you had the loss and it sort of lingers and you overreact for a week and then the next week you can sort of get back on the horse, as much as these other teams have games, they don't have significant games. So, you know, Texas going to beat Tulsa is not going to make it feel better, right? I mean, this is going to linger for a few weeks for Texas and some of these other teams. When is Texas's next significant game? I guess the week after that they play USC, right? Yeah, I think that's kind of the position that Texas is in now. You, you, you lose a game that you weren't supposed to there, so at some point in that schedule, you got to make it up and win a game you're not supposed to, and maybe that'll be USC. Um, obviously, that's going to be a really interesting test for a true freshman quarterback in JT Daniels coming to Austin. That's a you know USC team that, that didn't have the easiest time against UNLV throughout the day, um, but eventually pulled away, and um, you know that's, that's a game that you, you saw Texas, its defense, and Sam Ellinger play at a high level last year in California. And so, you know, I think there's a, they, they have that one a week from now to kind of circle and to kind of be the game that, uh, you know, that they can use to change the national perception. But, you know, I think part the, the Texas problem really just goes back to, I, I think really since 2014 is that they, they've just had so many young players. They just haven't won these games yet. They just haven't won these games consistently. I think it's been a long time since they've even won three games in a row. And, and so I think that's what this season is about for, for Tom Herman and, and this team is, They've just got to build that confidence back up again to, you know, find a way to, to win close games. Since 2014, they've lost 15 games by margins of seven points or less. There's no Power 5 program that's lost more close games than them. So I think a big part of that this, this year is just getting over that hump of learning, having these experiences, good and bad, and getting through them, and, uh, and it makes them a better team next year. But that's a tough process and one that Texas fans, obviously 14 games in with Tom Herman, are already getting – a little bit antsy, a little bit impatient. And uh, I think Tom Herman probably needs to do a better job on the messaging standpoint of just reminding people, like, this is going to be a process. It's not going to all happen this year. It's not all going to – there's not one change that's going to make everything work suddenly for Texas and, and put them in a Big 12 title game. It, this is going to be a tough season, but I think one that can build them towards a lot better things. So it's a great week for Texas A&M because – Texas lost. Uh, A&M had an easy victory in its first game against Jimbo. Texas loses. And, you know, I'm sure to a certain degree, Texas A&M fans probably gained a little bit of satisfaction watching Florida State 
uh, wipe out uh, to say like, hey, we got the better of that exchange. You guys were all happy to lose Jimbo. And to a certain degree, that was that was the narrative in Florida State. So it's a big week for Texas A&M and they get Clemson. So this is sort of the one moment this season. Well, I mean, there could be others, but there are not going to be a lot of moments this season. I don't think where Texas A&M has a chance to be really relevant. This is that. It's somewhat ironic, or at least odd, maybe not ironic, but certainly odd that it now comes against Dabo and Clemson, the team that sort of took over the ACC from Jimbo at Florida State. Again, it's hard to sort of judge off of beating, what was it, Northwestern State, but what do you think Texas A&M's chances are here to sort of make a statement? Yeah, I went out to College Station on Monday, and and talking to their players and and Jimbo Fisher, I think it's it's clear they're kind of embracing, you know, the home underdog role here that they, I, I think that, that, that first game really, you watched it. It was, it was just kind of a scrimmage level game. I mean, it was a pretty easy, you know, Travion Williams ran for two forty, but those, those run lanes were pretty wide open for him. And, uh, you know, I think Kellen Mond looked, looked lucky showed some progress in that first game, but it's hard to take a whole lot out of that. I, I think they look at this one as just kind of the underdog fighter that let's get in the ring and, and see if we have a chance and see where we're at. And, Obviously, I, w- I would say this test is coming a little bit too early for them in terms mm-hmm. of just where the, the building process is. And really, it is, it's kind of the inverse of Willie Taggart's situation at Florida State. I mean, this is, this is a football team that was recruited for a different style of offense and, and really a different kind of uh, type of ball there. And so, like, Jimbo Fisher didn't have any tight ends or fullbacks when he got to College Station. Like, he's having to kind of plug in some guys and, and kind of convert this um, as quickly as possible. And so – that, you know, they've got a younger offensive line, which is really going to have an incredible test against that Clemson front. Um, you know, I like Travion Williams. I, I think the key there is they have to find a way to run the ball and, and have a little balance and, and not just have uh, all the pressure on Kellen Mond, who's still just a true sophomore and, and still really hasn't started that many games. So it's a big test for them. I know Jim Fisher is, is really impressed by both Kelly Bryant and Trevor Lawrence and, and really would talk them up quite a bit on Monday. And they know that uh, no matter who's on the on the field, they're going to have a hard time. So I'm not sure A&M's ready for this, but I think with college game day coming to town and with the, the good vibes, like you said, of winning the first game, watching Texas lose, watching Florida State lose, I think they're in a good place. It's just I, I, they're about to find out just kind of really how far away they are from you know contending for a national championship. Is there a spot on that team as you've sort of gone over? And listen, you're not an A&M beat writer, so I don't expect you to have like sure. a deep dive on this team. But is there a spot on this A&M team that you think, oh, you know what? This is a good place for them to match up against Clemson. This is a place where maybe they could have some success against Clemson. You're right. You know, a young offensive line against that Clemson defensive line, a quarterback in Mond who is, again, as much as he might be a talented kid, was not really recruited to play this system. Uh, you know, where are the places where, where Texas A&M might be able to sort of hang their hat and say, like, okay, well, this is a spot where we're pretty good. You know, I think <laughs> at, at, at pretty much most levels of their defense, it's still a little bit of a work in progress. You're still kind of figuring out what you've got there. I do like their linebackers. I think Tyrell Dotson is a, is a nice athletic player. Um, they're going to get Anthony Hines back this week. Uh, Otara Laka, I'm not totally sure if he's healthy, but but he's a, a really good veteran linebacker. And I think that's going to be one of the keys for them is is they need to figure out a way to kind of box up Travis Etienne and, and the running backs in the Clemson game and, and really put Kelly Bryant or Trevor Lawrence into some of those second and long, third and long situations. I think that's their best bet. And then – you know, it's going to, like I said, the offensive line, that's the big problem there because Kellen Mond is like, you have to remember, Kellen Mond is like still learning how to like 
the footwork under center and all this stuff. Like, this is still quite a transition for this Texas A&M offense. The Jimbo Fisher playbook is immense and a lot to learn and a lot to adjust to. The quarterback is given a lot of pre-snap freedom. They have a lot of decisions to make once the ball snapped. So this is still really a learning process for Kellen Mond, a young kid um, who I think is, is a nice athlete. I think his arm looked better, still working on his footwork and accuracy. Um, and they just need to do a good job of, of protecting him and giving him a chance because if, if they're going to have a bunch of three and outs, then they're just not going to be able to hang on. The interesting thing about Clemson is they're now the most compelling quarterback competition in the country now that Alabama seems mm-hmm. to be settled. Dabo has sort of embraced this two-quarterback thing a little more with Trevor Lawrence and Kelly Bryant. He hasn't been quite as sensitive as Saban. Probably to a certain extent, though, that that might be giving Dabo a little too much credit. Saban has sort of been dealing with this thing since last January, whereas Mm -hmm. with Dabo, this thing has developed a little more slowly. My sense of this has been at some point Trevor Lawrence will will take over and that will be the guy at Clemson. I'm wondering if you get any sense of where, without just we're all sort of just guessing here, but where do you think this Mm -hmm. might end up going with Clemson? Yeah, I think it's similar to Alabama a year ago where we all watch it and you can all, you can kind of see the potential there and see, you know what, at some point in time, this kid is going to get his chance, his, his real chance to start, and he's probably never going to let it go once he does. And, and I, think we've, I think if you watched Alabama last season and you watched the way that Tua played, really, obviously it was a lot of mop-up time and SEC blowups and stuff, but when you watched him play, you just thought, wow, this, this kid can do some things that we just haven't seen from an Alabama quarterback in a while. And, and I, think the, uh, I think the same is probably going to be true of Trevor Lawrence. And I don't know if that's going to be this week or a couple months down the road or what, but uh, I think that because he's a true freshman, obviously he had him in for spring and that helps a lot. But I think you just kind of have to ride the wave a little bit here and kind of give him the time to develop and not, you know, knowing that you are going to be playing most likely for a college football playoff and, and possibly for a national championship. You, you do have to be careful about this, and, and you do have to kind of build him up and get him ready for big opportunities here. Um, but, I, you know, I, I think I, I don't mean any disrespect towards Kelly Bryant. I don't think any of us do. I think he's a good player, did a great job last season. But I think you just know he's going to hold on as long as he can. But at some point in time, it, it sort of feels inevitable that this will become a, a Trevor Lawrence operation, and, and, and he's just so – so gifted and and can you know is even a really good athlete too i don't think that's a big drop down from kelly bryan either so i i think that at some point in time it's it's going to come for him and and it's going to be pretty darn fun to watch the odd thing or the interesting thing that clemson has going on here is first of all they're really really good right so but they're really really good especially compared to the rest of the teams on their schedule now you have to watch that right because you know, they lost a random game to Syracuse last year. The year before when Deshaun Watson was there, they lost a game to Pitt. So you can lose. I mean, there there are there are mm-hmm. spots on your schedule when you can lose. You maybe lose at Georgia Tech, but they do are are in a situation where you can sort of see them thinking like we can work with two people here. We can build him up. We can work him in here because we have maybe on the road against A&M, you might want to be a little more cautious, lean on that defense, lean on Bryant to not make mm-hmm. mistakes. But you have Georgia Southern and you have Georgia Tech and then you're home for Syracuse and you're at Wake. And, you know, there there seems to be a path here to get Lawrence some really good experience without necessarily burying Bryant. Though, you know, I could also see a situation where Lawrence, again, sort of seizes the moment and really 
just mm-hmm. sort of takes this thing. Who, even this weekend, you know, a situation where, hey, you know, it's a raucous crowd, A&M's playing okay, and Lawrence just rips it up, and all of a sudden you're like, hey, now this is just the guy. I mean, he did it on the road, right. you know. It's just interesting to see they're so good and their schedule is set up in a way where they might be able to play this two-quarterback thing for a while. Well, I almost, I almost think that that's the Nick Saban process this year, too, is that same thing of, like, we're so good in every area that we just can't do anything where we lose a game because we mismanage the quarterback situation. You know what I mean? Yeah. Where, and you don't want to get into this kind of boomerang deal where you just kind of keep going back and forth where if suddenly A&M is up 10 nothing, then it's, Trevor Lawrence and Kelly's done for the day. I mean, you just you you have to be so gentle with these deals because you want to build that young guy that you know is the future, and you want to you still need the leadership of the older guy. And, and so, in, in both of these cases, these teams are just so talented that they could probably make some bad calls on this stuff and still overcome it and still win almost all their games. But it is that kind of how do you manage it in the big ball game and. I mean, going into the national title game, none of us ever thought we'd see it too, a cameo, and and then crazy things happen, and now here we are. You know, so it, it, you have to kind of keep building those kids up. Even if you're sticking with one and saying you're sticking with one no matter what, you have to keep developing and building up the confidence of both of them because you never kind of know what outcome might, might happen for a second quarter where suddenly we got to rethink this. Yeah, and, th- you know, th- actually bring up a, a really good point there, Max, and that is – Here's a place where you could possibly, on these really good teams, here is a, an area where you could screw it up, right? I mean, you could screw up your chemistry. You could try to move these guys in and out of the game and give them both a chance, but maybe that creates some lack of continuity in your offense, and all of a sudden you sort of back yourself into a weird game against a Georgia Tech or against a Wake Forest right. where, like, neither guy is playing with a lot of confidence and, oh, boy, now what have we done? You're sort of backing into it, right? Like, we know they're both good. We know our team is good. But I, I could screw this up, and we could fall into a loss here because I mismanaged the quarterback situation. The thing with Saban has gotten interesting, and I, I you know, where he is—he's sort of just taking these great pains to make sure that Jalen Hurts is, is feels the love to the extent of like. Right. Just referring to him as a backup, I think, is perceived as a slight by Saban. And, you know, it, it makes us all sort of play armchair uh, psychiatrist and why is he playing it this way? And there is a school of thought, thought here that, like, Jalen Hurts could be better off. And I sort of posited this on Twitter yesterday. Like, Jalen Hurts could be better off not playing this year, right? And just saying, you know what? I'm not burning my redshirt year playing mop-up and just running goal line situations or whatever you want me to do as, like, the backup quarterback. I'm going to take my right. red shirt, graduate transfer next year, and have two years of eligibility left. It's just a weird situation, and I'm wondering if you're reading anything more than just, you know, Saban is in a tough spot. Well, first of all, like, how dare we as media members even talk about it, right, Rob? Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's I, I, I feel for Jalen Hurts. I really do. And I think you have to go back to his comments he made in August, which is one of the few times when he's really spoken openly about this, and he said, you know, I think that this was a really frustrating process for him because I think he feels like no matter what the public speculation is or what the public narrative is, you know, he felt at the time, like internally, he still wasn't even really being treated like this was an equal deal or like that he was the incumbent starter or anything like that. And, you know, I, I think the kid is, is understandably, I think he's he's being <laughs> very um, observant about kind of what's going on here. And, and I think he understands the way this is playing out. I think he understands 
with the way that they, they played it with Louisville that, you know, look, Tua is the future and the future is now and here we go. But it's interesting. Jalen Hurts, I think, would probably get a lot of ba- a lot of flack if he were to come out and say, I just want to play four games this year and focus on my future beyond Alabama. I, I think that would not – he would get a lot of uh, grief for that. But I wouldn't blame him one bit for feeling that way at all. And, um, you know, I think the fascinating thing with Saban here, and, and I, you know, I think you saw it really in this opener, uh, in addition to the national title game, is when you are that talented, you can get away with being conservative offensively and with rolling with a quarterback in Hurts who just doesn't turn the ball over. And he's going to do good things for you, and he's going to make mistakes here and there, but he doesn't turn the ball over, he, and he didn't last season. And I think you saw with Tua, like, he gives Alabama a chance to do just incredible things on offense that they haven't done before. But Nick might hate it more. You know what I mean? He, <laughs> he's going to take risks that he shouldn't. He's going to make throws that he's pretty sure he can make that he can't. He's going to do some wild things and get away with it some of the time and, and, and maybe not get away with some of it. And I think that's the thing that always makes Nick a little bit nervous is that they have enough talent that they don't need to be doing those things. But that's the fun thing about the Tua takeover here is it, it raises their potential, but it also creates a little bit of chaos there with a guy who can make incredible plays, but is still just a true sophomore and is still going to make mistakes. Yeah, they they have the ability. I think I was looking in the Saban era – which is odd because if you, I think I noticed it was the Jake Coker year where Alabama averaged the highest it, it's it's best its best yards per play was I think the Jake Coker uh, national championship team, which is a little again a little surprising just because like really that team but it had Ridley and it had you know Derrick Henry and those guys and it averaged about seven yards per play. This team has a chance to do better than that. This team has a chance to be the best mm-hmm. offense in the Saban era, but it it is not the Saban era has not been 40 points per game, you know, nonstop offense. That has not been the way that they've gone about things. So this is a different look. It's a different vibe around an Alabama team. It certainly could be a lot of fun. You know, it is a weird situation for Jalen Hurts. I kind of feel bad for him to a certain degree, and I don't un- completely understand the way, again, Nick has played this. But I also think it brings up a bigger point of sort of like who has the power in this situation. On a certain level, Jalen has the power here, right? Jalen has a lot of leverage because he could say, you know what? I'm out. I'm not doing this. I'll finish my degree online or however I'm going to do it. Now, it's probably an awkward mm-hmm. way to do it. I'm sure it's not the, what he wants to do, right? He went to Alabama. He's got a chance to walk down in graduation and get that Alabama diploma and do a lot of great things that I'm sure he really wanted to do coming out of high school. But he could also like leave the team right now, pull a Blake Barnett, and graduate in a couple of months. I, I, he could probably still do that. <laughs> and I think it's just reflective of we – sometimes are or fans are sometimes uncomfortable realizing that the players have some power here. Alabama would Uh be a worse team without Jalen Hurts. They don't necessarily need Jalen Hurts, but there's no doubt about the fact that Alabama is better with Jalen Hurts. Saban realizes that. So, you know, maybe there's a little bit of that going on with Saban in that he doesn't want to alienate the kid because he realizes that I don't need him, but I I certainly want him and he my, my team is better with him. Yeah, there's no question, and it's an unfair deal for Jalen Hurts because I think the like the classic opinion on this would be like Jalen, just be a good teammate, like be our goal line rusher if that's what we need you to do, play mop up duty, just basically do whatever we tell you to do, and and go in when we tell you to, 
and just kind of keep a smile on your face and kind of make this work. Be a good teammate. Be a good guy in the locker room. Help to as much as you can and then leave after this season. And that's just not fair to Jalen Hurts. I mean, if, if Jalen decides to do that, if that's the way that he wants to play this because he, he feels like that's just the, the most successful way to get through this fall and, and get a ring and then move on or whatever, uh, then, then good for him. Um, you know, that would show a lot of maturity on his part. But I, I think if, if fans or coaches or whoever expect him to play that, like, he's not obligated to do that. Um, this is a kid who has, has put in a lot for Alabama in his two seasons as a starter. Um, you know, I think he was incredibly, you know, gracious and classy when he handled the way he handled the national title game and just said, I'm happy to win the game. I'm happy for Tua. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to make a big deal about this. I, I think the kid has tried to play this right, even if that means, you know, kind of being muzzled throughout the offseason, not really being able to speak up on this stuff very much. Um, you know, I, he, he's being told basically to, you know, like, like you saw from, from Nick Saban in August, like he was saying basically, yeah, don't, please don't speak up on this. Don't have your family members speaking up on this. That's the one thing that can hurt you. So he's kind of put in this really tough position here where he can't speak his mind and he's being asked to just, sacrifice basically and just help the team and um you know if that's what he chooses to do then great for him but i wouldn't blame him one bit if, if he doesn't and i hope that people would come to an understanding that that this kid has to look after his future and you know he you know obviously there's injury risk you know that's that's going to come with it if he has to play in every game this season and, um you know i'm really interested to see just how he handles it because i think you're right i think he does have more leverage than people probably realize so we are going to take a quick break with Max Olson from The Athletic. We are here on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. We'll talk a little bit more about what's not a great weekend slate of games, but we'll hit on a few others and preview the rest of the week right after this. And we're back on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo from the Associated Press. Max Olson from The Athletic is joining me. Max will be at Clemson, Texas A&M, which I think is the most fascinating game of the weekend, even if it's not the best game of the weekend. It's not a weekend that's going to have a bunch of great games. I think USC-Stanford is probably the only one that's going to match uh, top 25 teams. There are a couple of interesting things going on in Big 12 country, which is sort of where you live. Mississippi State-Kansas State is kind of interesting, right? Because Kansas State didn't play well at all last week. But to me, that's just a big old setup. Not that I think Kansas State will win, but you could easily. The week one overreaction always leads to these sort of like, hey, wow, didn't expect that coming in week two. And I'm wondering if that's one of those spots where Kansas not playing well against South Dakota leads to Kansas, excuse me, Kansas State not playing well against South Dakota leads to them playing well against Mississippi State. Well, I think we've also got the wild card that we didn't get to see Nick Fitzgerald in week one, you know, so there we don't really have that evidence of how he's looking in that Joe Moorhead offense. And, and I think there's a, a possibility that he he steps in there and just unloads on Kansas State, uh, which, you know, I think that South Dakota game, definitely a little bit concerning. They're still trying to figure out their own quarterback deal with Skylar Thompson and Alex Delton. Skylar Thompson ended up being the one that finished the job for them um, to survive that game. You know, they needed a special teams touchdown. Uh, They needed South Dakota, you know, missing a a game-tying field goal on the last minute, uh, a field goal that hit the hit the crossbar. Um, Otherwise, they would have gone to overtime. And I guess you don't really know how it would have played out um, had that been the case, um, I, I think that's a game that, yeah, you don't want to overreact to, to week one, but um, this is a Kansas State team that 
in, in relative to, to the best of the best in the Big 12, the, the, the talent level isn't totally there, and, and they're going to be a work in progress a little bit. They're probably going to end up outperforming our expectations because that's kind of what they always do. So, yeah, there's there's definitely some chance that they're going to be, a, you know, a big underdog this week, and, and then all of a sudden they play Mississippi State extremely close, and we're surprised by it. Um, so that's, that's definitely possible, but man, I'm just excited to see Fitzgerald running that offense. And after having, you know, after being suspended for week one, I, I suspect he's going to go out and, and really light it up. And, and uh, I wouldn't be surprised if Mississippi State rolls in that one. Yeah, UCLA fell flat. I wasn't that surprised that UCLA started the year with a loss to Cincinnati. Just because I, I really think Chip Kelly is out there just pushing round pegs into square holes mm-hmm. this first season. And now UCLA comes to Oklahoma, which is just picking up where it left off last year, scoring a bunch of points uh, with Kyler Murray uh, replacing Baker Mayfield. I don't, I don't necessarily give UCLA much of a chance here. Did you have a chance to see much of the Oklahoma game? And I'm wondering what your thoughts were, if you did, on Murray. I did, and I'm, I'm not sure how many people nationally act, actually watched that game, but I, I think if everyone had been watching – Oklahoma looked like a playoff team. Like Oklahoma looked like they're not going to take a step back. I mean, let's not really underestimate FAU. Like they, they really could not get anything going with Devin Singletary and their offense. Um, they're obviously they're working with a new quarterback, and they have a lot of stuff to figure out um, as, as Lane kind of tries to keep that momentum going. But Oklahoma uh, lit them up and, and did so very quickly. Um, Kyler Murray just looked incredible. Um, I, the the run game with Rodney Anderson leading the way uh, was able to do a lot. I think there's just so many playmakers around Kyler Murray at running back and receiver and at tight end uh, that they're going to continue to score a lot of points. And I think it's, you know, as much as people kind of freak out about them losing Baker Mayfield and a lot of those players that, that led them to the Rose Bowl and all those Big 12 titles, I think we're going to see this season that, that Lincoln Riley can plug guys into what he's doing and they're still going to score a ton of points and win a ton of games. I, I just think he's that good of a coach. And, um, I, you know, in terms of their defense, I think they are a little bit better. Um, like I said, the, the, I, I was encouraged by the way they were able to stop the run against Singletary, who was one of the most prolific backs in the country last year. And, you know, I think UCLA probably does not have much of a chance in this one, I, especially if they're going to roll out the true freshman quarterback, uh, Dorian Thompson-Robinson in that one. I think Oklahoma has a really has a chance to build a lot of momentum here. They have to go play at Ames here next, which is, which is going to be an interesting one. But, um, man, it, it, I watched Oklahoma, and it was same old, same old with them, even without Baker Mayfield. Uh, they're going to score a ton of points, and if they're a little bit better on defense, then you know they could really roll yet again this year. Rodney Anderson might be the most one of the more underrated or underappreciated players in the country. I, I, that's, it's getting to the point now where he gets talked about a lot in that way, so that means you're no longer underrated if you're constantly being called underrated. But he is a, a pretty special talent, and I think you know because he's not Bryce Love or or Jonathan Taylor coming off two thousand yard seasons, he sort of has gotten lost in the mix here a little bit. You know, he only played; he was only the starter for about half of last season. But he is a, a, a pretty talented player and quite a weapon for Oklahoma. Yeah, the, the, the combination of the size and the speed with him is really impressive. That's, he's a kind of a taller back, but um, one that can really break away. He can break tackles and he can break away. And I think he, I think in F, with FAU, I think he only got like five carries for 100 yards and two touchdowns or something like that. They didn't really need much from him. But, you know, he, this is a guy who – um, had a lot of injury setbacks in his first, you know, two, two and a half years in the program there. Um, and, and a guy that last season you saw when they got into Big 12 play, 
and they were kind of cycling through backs. When Rodney Anderson stepped in and was healthy and ready to play, um, he was incredible and, and, and really a guy that had played a huge role in Oklahoma's run through the Big 12 and, and giving them a chance to, to beat Georgia in the Rose Bowl. And uh, so I, I think that guy has a ton of talent. If he's healthy, uh, definitely one of the best backs in the Big 12 and in the country. And, and it just takes even even more pressure off of Kyler Murray that he doesn't have to do everything. And, um, you know, you saw a couple times in that game for Kyler Murray, if he can just stand back there with a clean pocket, um, he can throw a 50, 60-yard ball that's just beautiful. And he has guys like Marquise Brown that can run under it. So the, 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 just the level of weapons that they have at Oklahoma, I think, um, is still pretty spectacular. Let me hit on one other game here that is outside the top 25, but is really interesting because we haven't seen Scott Frost coach a game yet at Nebraska. The Huskers game was canceled last week because of weather against Akron, so they didn't have that nice little tune-up there. Colorado, meanwhile, who comes to Lincoln this weekend, had a great tune-up. Just blew out Colorado State, which, you know, on a side note, like Colorado State is just not tackling anybody this, this year. I mean, they've right. gone through two yeah. two games of just being – just lit up like Texas Tech style on uh, on defense. But Colorado-Nebraska is sort of, you know, it's an interesting old-school Big 12 rivalry. I think we're all sort of interested to see what Frost has in his bag of tricks. I'm wondering if I'm going to get a good chance to watch this game at 3.30 on Saturday. You know, it'll be among the mix of being, you know, games that you're flipping around to. But I'm very much interested to see what Frost has for Colorado, and especially now that Colorado looks like it might have something with Montez in that offense. Yeah, Montez has looked uh, tremendous. I, I think that opener against Colorado State was really encouraging about, um, you know, Colorado having a chance to really be relevant again this season and, and um, really be a tough out in the Pac-12. And, you know, I think for Nebraska, just like with any new coach, I, I think Nebraska needed that game against Akron um, just as a as a, a kind of a guide of where they're at, where they're still deficient. Um, I, I've been really impressed in, in, in getting to visit Nebraska a couple times this offseason. Really impressed by Scott Frost and his staff and what they're doing there. The, the player buy-in um, has been pretty unanimous there. Um, th- this was really a dysfunctional team last year when you know you have the AD getting fired in September, and, and then it's pretty clear throughout the season that that, that, that coaching staff is going down. And um, you, I think you saw a Nebraska team last year that had more talent than its 4-8 and eight record showed. And so I think they're one of those teams that is really intriguing as one that could really kind of make that make a bit of a jump in Frost's first year, um, you know, he's down to one scholarship quarterback in Adrian Martinez, who is the future. He's the guy they want to build around. He's the first big recruit they brought in and flipping him from Tennessee and really a mature and dynamic kid who I think that reminds them a lot of Marcus Mariota, um, which is a lot to say for a true freshman. But, you know, I think when you have that kind of a situation with a new offense, with a, with a uh, you know, just a baby at quarterback there, you need those non-conference games, those winnable non-conference games, to kind of work through some stuff. And so I think Colorado is a really interesting first test because they didn't get to play Akron and one where I don't know that we'll necessarily see their best, but I think we're going to see kind of that classic, um, you know, Scott Frost kind of Oregon UCF offense in play here. They've got the weapons to, to run it. And, and, and um, I, I think have a nice initial year of this, um, but Colorado is a real test. That's a, that's a real opponent there to start off. And uh, I, I think Nebraska would pull it out, but, um, you know, just like we've seen with these other coaches, it's, it's still going to be a process. It's still going to take some time to recruit uh, and, and kind of restock that roster to, to exactly what they want to do. Here's what I what I find interesting about Nebraska and Colorado. I'll use uh, Virginia Tech, Florida State as an example, right? I think to a certain degree, Virginia Tech beat Florida State because Virginia Tech is the stable 
team that has continuity that sort of knows what it's doing, right? It came out there. It's been even though the players were different and nine something like nine new starters for Bud Foster. Virginia Tech has a well-established identity. Those players had come up through that system. Virginia Tech was team continuity, whereas Florida State was team trying to work it out and figure out what works and what doesn't here. And, you know, Mm -hmm. we have all this new system and these new guys and new coaches and everything is new. And to a certain degree, that's Colorado and Nebraska. Now, Now, you can say Virginia Tech's a better level of opponent than Colorado is. Maybe, maybe not. But Colorado sort of knows what it is. I mean, regardless of the fact that it had a bad season last year, it absolutely knows what it is. It's had a certain amount of stability with Mike McIntyre. It's going in there with a clear idea of what works for Colorado. And what will be interesting for a Scott Frost team is, unlike Willie Taggart, and unlike if he can do this, which Chip Kelly couldn't, which Willie Taggart couldn't, Mm -hmm. if he can go out there in Game 1 and show that I can face down a team that already has a, an established identity. I've already, I'm, I'm able to sort of take my team in flux, but still create an identity and create some stability here. That would be a really good sign for Nebraska. Now, again, I don't want to make too much out of it, but if Nebraska can come out and win this game, I think it says a lot about where Scott Frost could go in this first season, especially if you're looking at just like small accomplishments. To me, if you're Nebraska, if you can get to a bowl game this year, that's a huge deal. You get, again, this new system gets a few more practices to grow. You have a new quarterback who can get to flourish a little bit more. So I think if you're looking for significant small steps, Nebraska winning this game would be a significant small step to show like how good Scott Frost can be in a short period of time. I think you're right, and, and boy, if you look at Nebraska's schedule, um, especially now that they've lost the game, which I, I'm sure they're still trying to figure out some way to kind of make that up at some point here, but you look at that schedule and like you need the, to, to take the wins when you can get them because here is their Big Ten road schedule. They're going to open at Michigan on September 22nd after playing Troy next week, and then the rest of the Big Ten road games, so you got Michigan, you got Wisconsin, Northwestern, Ohio State, and Iowa. Like yeah, that is just brutal. a brutal way, yeah. brutal way to be set up for your first season. Now it, it gets a lot easier next year, and I think that's why Scott Frost has has been telling people that he thinks they have a chance to be really dangerous in 2019, especially as they kind of invest this year developing Adrian Martinez and developing all these players around their system. But you, you know, now that you've lost the game uh, due to the cancellation, which they'll try and make up at some point. Um, you know, I, I think the goal at Nebraska definitely is to get to six somehow um, and, and you know, try and win one of those games that you shouldn't at some point in Big Ten play. But, you know, this Colorado game I think is a pretty important one, um, not just to kind of demonstrate their progress, but <laughs> in terms of the big picture of getting a six, this is a pretty a pretty valuable one. And I think you're right. In terms of the continuity thing, I think we, we oftentimes kind of overlook that. Like I was asked a lot, like, does Tennessee have a chance against West Virginia? And, and I think the, the honest answer to that is, no, I think that, that Tennessee, this is the beginning of their journey. And, 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 you know, West Virginia was a team that this has all been kind of building towards this season. And that's how a lot of this stuff goes. I think you saw it last night with Virginia Tech and Florida State, that we tend to underestimate the, those programs that have been doing the same thing for years, just have a lot of natural advantages against these these new takeovers here. And, and so, yeah, Colorado finds a way to win against Nebraska and Lincoln wouldn't be that shocked just based on what Mike McIntyre has been able to do there. But, uh, I, I think Nebraska is a really fascinating team because I think they're, like I said, I think their talent level is a little better than we probably look at on paper. 
All right, Max, last one for you, and then we'll get you out of here. So give me the one, you know, sort of off the radar, either game or player or coach, something that's a that you're keeping an eye on this weekend that could be sort of a developing or interesting story on a weekend where it doesn't look like there's a lot of sexy matchups. Yeah, you know, I think the one game we didn't mention was Georgia at South Carolina. I think that one has a chance to be a little bit interesting. I think South Carolina is a team that I think Will Muschamp is starting to kind of put pieces together there um, and, and – I think having Debo Samuel back makes them a, a lot more dangerous offensively. And so I think that's an interesting road test for Georgia so early on in the season. Um, and, and then I think the, the late night game Saturday is going to be a lot of fun. I think Michigan State at Arizona State could be a little bit unpredictable um, just because, I, you know, obviously not very impressed by what Michigan State did in their opener against Utah State. They've had, an ex- you know, some additional time to get ready for the Sun Devils, who looked great against uh, UTSA um, in, in, in a big win there. Uh, but, yeah, the, uh, you know, can Herm Edwards get his guys ready to put together an upset bid against Michigan State on a, on a you know, a, a late night, humid night down in the desert? Um, I think that's a really good test for the Spartans, which really did not, uh, I think, make a, make a great impression on all of us in, in week one. Max Olson from The Athletic, thank you so much for joining the AP Top 25 podcast this week. Enjoy College Station, and remember when the stadium starts to shake, it's built to do that. (laughs) Thanks. I'm probably still going to get a little bit freaked out, but I do appreciate the reminder. And now, three and out. First down. At the risk of boring you to death by doing math on the radio, I need to explain something about fourth down and short field goals. During the Virginia Tech game, the Hokies went for it on fourth and goal at the one and were stuffed. A field goal would have made it a 17-point game at the time, and in the end, Virginia Tech won anyway, so all was well. I believe you should never, ever kick field goals of less than 20 yards unless it's in the fourth quarter and you're at a point when it will be difficult for your opponent to get enough possessions to match the scores it needs. Virginia Tech's fourth down and goal came with less than a minute left in the third quarter. There was little doubt Florida State, with its up-tempo offense, was going to get three more possessions. The Knolls, indeed, ended up with four more. But here's the other reason why you always go in that situation. Fourth and goal from the one is better than a 50% chance of scoring a touchdown. Now, how much better depends on how good you are and how good the team you're playing is, but it's still better than 50% chance. Why would you give up those odds? The other part is, no matter what happens on that play, Florida State is getting the ball back. Your decision is most likely give them the ball back inside the two or most likely give them the ball back around the 25 after you kick off. If Virginia Tech kicks that field goal, it is also boosting Florida State's chances of scoring on its next possession. Kicking an 18-yard field goal in that spot is taking the odds, seeing they're in your favor, and still saying, no thanks. Second down. To build on that point, analytics have done wonders for better kick-or-go decision-making in college football and in the NFL, but there is still a long ways to go, especially in the NFL, where they're ultra-conservative. The core problem is this. For years, conventional wisdom in football decision-making was to consider the worst-case scenario and make choices that best position a team to avoid the worst-case scenario. That basically takes the whole process of balancing risk and reward and sets it on fire. You think you're taking a risk when the odds are clearly in your favor. Third down. Not a lot of marquee matchups this week with only two games matching ranked teams, 
but there are still plenty of intriguing games that will have my attention. Max and I already covered Colorado-Nebraska and Michigan State at Arizona State, but here are a few more. Duke is at Northwestern in a game between two teams that might be fringy top 25 this season. Georgia Tech is at South Florida. Let's see what Bulls quarterback Blake Barnett can do against an ACC team. Iowa and Iowa State play their annual rivalry, an interesting swing game for both teams. That's the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, Warren Levinson, for making me sound good. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts and on Podcast One. Please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening and come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast.